Well, good evening one last time. And it's so good to see all of you here for our final message. And again, as I said this morning, I have been richly blessed by being here in Bermuda the last nine days. My wife and daughter have also enjoyed being here with you. And it's been a blessing for me to be able to share with you during this time the various messages that we have covered. And just by way of review, we started off last Sabbath saying that we need to wake up out of sleep, that we're in a lukewarm condition. And then we saw examples that show us that we don't need to stay sleeping. We don't need to be new, lukewarm. Abraham gives us an example of living out the three angels' messages. Elijah gives us the example of someone who fearlessly proclaimed the truth during his time. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who was a living sacrifice for us when he died on the cross. And then we saw that the reformers carried that spirit forward, and it the extension of the Reformation was the raising up of the Second Advent Movement, which we talked about last night. And then we saw this morning that God sent a special message to this church in 1888 to prepare a people to be part of that last day group who will stand when he comes. And what we're going to talk about tonight, the title for the message is The Last Generation and the cross of Christ. We're specifically going to be looking at the 144,000, those who are prepared by the messages that we've been talking about, those who will stand with the Lamb. So before we get into that message, I would like to offer a word of prayer, and I will kneel and you can bow your heads as we get into this message. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us out one more time to hear a message that reminds us of our need to be living sacrifices, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we speak one more time, I pray that you would speak through me and that we would hear what is needed to be heard. And so we thank you so much for your blessings and for bringing us here tonight. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The last generation and the cross of Christ. God has designed that there should be a generation of faithful saints living upon the earth when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. There will be a generation alive that will stand when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. This will be the last generation upon the earth. And just as there is a righteous last generation, there will be a wicked last generation. But there will be a generation of people standing upon the earth when Jesus comes back in the clouds of heaven. And Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 5 verses 1 through 5, gives a description of this group of people known as the 144,000. And before we read the description, let me just explain to you where the 144,000 come from, because if you study Revelation, it becomes very clear. You have the seven churches, the seventh church, the Laodicean church, the church of the judgment hour, which we talked about a week ago tonight. This church is in a lukewarm condition, yet Jesus sends a pointed testimony to that church to prepare them to wake up. And when you come then to the seven seals, which follow the seven trumpets, when you come to the end of the seals, you find that there are a group of people that wake up based on the message that Jesus gives. They are known as the 144,000. And then you come to the seven trumpets, which follow the seven seals, and you find at the end of the seven trumpets that it's through the second advent movement, which Jesus himself raised up, that God prepares the 144,000. And specifically, after you come past the church of seals and trumpets to Revelation 14, you see it's through the proclamation of the three angels' messages that the 144,000 are prepared. And we saw this morning that Jesus himself is a living demonstration on the cross. As he's dying on the cross, he demonstrates to us the third angel's message. And it is that message that prepares the 144,000. So let's look now at Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. 
And here John the Revelator says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That is your description of the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14. And up until this point in the book of Revelation, God's people have been under attack. They have been under duress. They have been facing persecution. The dragon has been wroth with them. He's been coming after them. You see, the whole world makes a death decree against them in Revelation 13. But finally, in Revelation 14, John sees a picture of victory. God's people are no longer under attack or persecution. They are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And they have in their forehead, the name of the Father written. This is the Lamb's Father, which is the Lamb, of course, is Jesus. Now, what do we know then about this 144,000? They are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. They have the Father's name in their foreheads. They sing a new song. They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. They have no guile in their mouth, and they are without fault before the throne of God. So what do we know about them? They have God's name in their forehead, specifically the Father's name. They follow the Lamb, Jesus, wherever he goes. They have no guile or deceit in their mouth, and they are faultless before the throne of God. They have passed the judgment. That is the people that we are striving to be part of. Amen? Now, let me show you a few things that are very interesting about the 144,000. First of all, they are standing with the Lamb. Don't you want to be standing with the Lamb? The 144,000 are standing with Jesus. And when you come to John chapter 1, verse 29, as John the Baptist is pointing people to Jesus for the very first time, as Jesus comes into the midst of John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, as he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here are a group of people, the 144,000, who have learned to behold the Lamb. He has taken away their sin, and they are standing on Mount Zion with him whom they have beheld. And not only that, they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. What do we know about the Father's name? Let me just show you one verse. There's many others that we could look at. But in Isaiah chapter 57... Verse 15, we read, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. God's name is holy. And the 144,000 who stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb, they have the Father's name, which is holy, written in their foreheads, in their minds. That means that their minds are holy. They have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. When Paul says that in Philippians 2, he's just not speaking hyperbole here. He is saying, have the mind of Christ, which is holy. And the 144,000 have learned that experience, and they have allowed God's character, his name, which is holy, to be written in their foreheads. 
because they have beheld the Lamb of God. You know, by beholding, we become changed. And as we behold the Lamb of God who is holy, we are changed into his image, and his holy character becomes our character. And I really like the fact that the Father's name is written in our foreheads. As a neurologist, I really like that. Because in the forehead, that's the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is the part of the brain where we make our conscious choices for good or evil. That is where the will, or the will resides. That's where our conscience is. And God is specifically saying, I am putting my name in the part of your mind where you make your decisions for good or for evil. And here are a group of people at the end of time in a world of evil, in a world of wickedness, who have chosen to stand on the side of God and have said, because we've beheld Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain upon the cross, slain from the foundation of the world, we have been changed into his image and we will choose to do good, to be right, to be holy through his power and through his grace. And God says, I will put my name, my character on your forehead because you have chosen to live a holy life. Standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, Jesus Christ, having the Father's name, written in their foreheads. And then verse 2 creates a scene that you can imagine with your ears, hearing the voice from heaven, the voice of many waters. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? We can't. But to hear the heavenly sounds when we stand on the sea of glass, there is nothing on this earth that, compare, that can compare to what we will experience in heaven. And in verse 3, it says, They sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Now, in the Bible, when you sing a song, and this is even true of songs in our hymnal, when you sing a song, when a writer writes a song, what is that song conveying? In the Bible especially, a song describes an experience. Read the Psalms, the Psalms of David. Read the song of Moses in Exodus 15 after they passed through the Red Sea and escaped the Egyptians. And the 144,000, they are singing a new song because it's a new experience, an experience that no one else has ever gone through. These are the group of people who have passed through that time of trouble described in Daniel chapter 12, such as the world has never seen. And they have passed through and have been faithful to God. And so they can sing a song of an experience that no one else has ever gone through. And then verse 4, these are they which are not defiled with women. Prophetically speaking, this means they were not defiled by the woman Babylon or the harlot daughters. And you know, there's a lot to that. Not only were they separate from Babylon, that means some of them had never been part of Babylon, some of them may have come out of Babylon, but not only in name only had they separated themselves, but in their life and in their experience. And my brothers and sisters, in God's remnant church, there is no place for the methods, the worship styles, and the practices of Babylon among God's last day people. Because God's last day people have not been defiled by Babylon and the, and the harlot daughters. If we are going to be part of the 144,000, we will not be defiled with the theology, the practices, the ideas, the concepts of modern-day Babylon. For they are virgins. Notice, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Listen, when you learn to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, as you keep your eyes on Jesus, he says, keep following me. One of the problems that we often has, have is that we don't keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't follow him wherever he would take us. And if we are going to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth in heaven, 
we need to learn to do that here on this earth. Don't expect to just get to heaven and say, well, I never followed Jesus on earth, but now I'll follow you, Jesus. But if we learn to follow him here, we will follow him whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now notice verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now here's what I want to submit to you. The 144,000 have no guile in their mouths, no deceit. They are without fault before the throne of God because as they have kept their eyes on the Lamb of God, they have been changed into the same image. And it's very interesting. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, you find something about Jesus that we see in the 144,000. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. And here's Peter, the Apostle Peter, is speaking to the Christian church. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Peter's saying, listen, when you mess up and you get rebuked for messing up and you take it patiently, that's, ex that's just what should be expected. And, you know, in the modern world today, when we mess up and we get called out for it, we say, how dare you take Tell me that I messed up. Don't cross my pride. And yet the scripture is saying, if you mess up and you're called out for it, you should accept that. That's just the way it is. But not only that, when you do the right thing and suffer for it, and you get called out for doing what's right, for standing for what's right, and you take it patiently, that is what is acceptable with God. And that's only by the grace of God that we can do that because humanly we're going to fight back and we're going to say I did the right thing I stood up for what's right how dare you treat me this way continuing verse 21 for even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. So Christ suffered. He gives us an example. We should follow after him. In what way? Verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. There's Jesus. No guile in his mouth, just like the 144,000. And the next verse, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Jesus, as he goes through the final trial of life on this earth, as he is being spat upon, as he is being slapped, as they are saying, prophesy, who hit you? If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And he had done nothing wrong. He patiently took that abuse and that suffering and he committed it to God the Father who judges righteously. And that's the example that he gives to us. He didn't fight back and have guile in his mouth. What an example to us. The 144,000, these are those who apparently are going to come through great tribulation, through suffering, through trials. And just as Jesus went through the experience of the cross, the 144,000 have learned to behold the Lamb of God so that when they are reviled, when they suffer, when they are threatened, they will respond the way Jesus did as they, they go through the crises of life before the final time of trouble and as they go through that last great time of trouble. And that's something for us to seriously ponder, to seriously examine our hearts. What are we like when we are crossed, when our wills are crossed, when our spouse gets on our nerves? Listen, if we can't handle our spouse, what are we going to do when, when all the chips are on the line at the end of time? No guile in the mouth. And they are without fault before the throne of God. And it's interesting. In Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we see another description of Jesus. Actually, let's start in verse 13. 
And Paul's making an, an illustration comparing the blood of bulls and goats to the blood of Christ. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now notice in the King James it says he offered himself without spot. But if you have a marginal reading, you will see he offered himself without fault. And the word in the Greek for spot and fault is the same, and it's identical to the word in the Greek used in Revelation 14.5. Meaning that Jesus offered himself without fault as the Lamb of God. He was without fault before God. He was a perfect sacrifice. He was without fault just like the 144,000 described in Revelation 14. So the 144,000, they have the Father's name, which is holy, written in their foreheads. They have no guile in their mouths, and they are without fault before the throne of God, and in each situation, having the Father's character in their forehead. That's just like Jesus. Jesus and the Father are one without fault before the throne of God. That's just like Jesus. No guile in the mouth. That is just like Jesus. The 144,000, as they have kept their eyes on the Lamb of God, have been changed into the image of the Lamb himself, and they stand on Mount Zion with him. They have been transformed by the three angels' messages into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as we want to gain maybe one last glimpse of an understanding during this week of revival, how the 144,000, God's last day people, who come from God's second advent movement, meaning that God designs that we should be among that number, as we look one more time about how this group is prepared, I want to bring you back to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look through a good section of Hebrews 12 as we see what it means to behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world so that we can have the Father's name in our foreheads, so that we can follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes, so that we can be without fault before the throne of God and to have no guile in our mouths. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Hebrews 11 has just happened where we've seen these heroes of faith and Paul is saying, look, we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Look at the heroes of faith. Look at Enoch, look at Abel, look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses, all of the others, those who were stoned, they were sawn asunder, of whom the world was not worthy. Look at them. They are a cloud of witnesses. If they could live a life of faith, we can too. Let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race set before us. Listen, when Paul says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, we all know just how easy it is to sin. Sin is basically almost as easy as breathing for us. And in some areas of our lives, we've become so good at it that we, that we do it automatically without even thinking and we hardly feel bad about it. And yet scripture says, lay it aside. It's easily besetting you. It's easily bringing you down. And he says not only to lay aside the sin in your life, but every weight, because he says we're running a race. And there are some things in your lives that might be okay if you weren't running the Christian race on the way to heaven. But we are running the Christian race on the way to heaven. And just as a marathon runner doesn't wear a backpack loaded down with bottles of water, but rather has the bottles thrown to him as he or she is running and just drinks on the run, God's people shouldn't be weighed down by unnecessary burdens. 
And we might say, well, what's a, this isn't a salvational issue, so what's the problem? The problem is it's slowing you down in your walk with God. You know, there might be a news program that's okay to watch on television. I watch some from time to time. But if you're watching it all day, every day, and that's all you can think about, and Jesus has been pushed aside, that's become a weight in your life that needs to be laid aside. And you can apply that to anything else. I'm just giving a fairly benign example. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now listen. If that's the only verse that we had, this would sound like legalism because it sounds like you have to do the work. But listen, yes, we make a choice. Yes, we make a choice to lay aside the weights and the sin in our life. But the way we do it is found in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is what it means to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We, we are told to lay aside the way and the sin in our lives, and as we behold the Lamb of God, He takes those sins away. He's like, if you're going to behold me as you run this way, race, I will take those sins away from you. You don't have the power to take the sin away, but I can forgive your sin if you trust in my merits. And as we trust in the merits of Jesus, we receive forgiveness and we also receive power to run that race, to begin that race. And we are called to run that race with patience. And Paul talks about patience in one other passage in Hebrews 10. I'll just mention this. In Hebrews 10, 36, he says, For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise, verse 37, for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that, who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So you put the two verses together. We're running a race with patience that is leading us to the coming of Jesus Christ. Because after you have done the will of God, you will receive the promise. He that shall come will come and will not tarry. As we wait for Jesus to come, it takes patience, endurance to keep running forward and to not draw back to perdition. The devil wants us to take our eyes off the author and the finisher of our faith so that we won't get to the finish line. But Jesus is saying through Paul, the apostle, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and you run with patience the race that is set before you in a little while, he that shall come will come, and he will come in the clouds of heaven to take you home. And you see in that passage, while we are running that race, it says the just shall live by faith. And you're running that race with patience. That's all connected to the third angel's message. So let's look a little bit more in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, we're talking in spiritual terms about running a race. By definition, when you run a race, there is a starting line and a finishing line, is there not? And we're told to run a race, therefore it has a starting point and it has a finishing point. And the question is, if we look at this passage, does the Apostle Paul show us what the starting line is and what the finishing line is? Well, he really gives you the answer because he says, look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of the faith race that you are running. We're running the race of faith with patience, and Jesus helps us to start the race as the author of our faith, and he promises us that if we keep our eyes on him, he will help us to finish the race as the finisher of our faith. He's not going to let, let us go halfway through the race and say, well, you've done okay for the first half. Let's see how you can do on your own now. But you know we do that? It's not God that lets go of us. We say, man, I've been having a great Christian experience. I've been coming along. I think I'll just start doing it my own way now. 
But if we learn to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, he will take us from the beginning point to the finishing point. Now, does Paul give us a specific clue? If Jesus is the author, if he's the finisher, what's the starting point and what's the finishing point? Let's look carefully here. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see a finishing line? The finishing line is clearly the right hand of the throne of God. What's the starting point? It's the cross who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, which is why Jesus says, if any man will follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The race of faith begins at the cross as we see the author of our faith enduring the cross, despising the shame, for the joy that was set before him, those who would be saved as a result of his sacrifice. And as we run the race set before us, we look at the joy set before us, which is Jesus, our Savior, who has promised eternal salvation to each one of us. So we start the race of faith at the cross. We come to the foot of the cross. We see Jesus hanging on the cross. And through faith, we become crucified with him and become living sacrifices. That is the beginning point in the race that we are called to run with patience. And the good news is that there is a finishing line. That finishing line is at the right hand of the throne of God where Jesus is seated. And in Hebrews 12, he is described as the author and the finisher of our faith, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he is described as our great high priest, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So do you know where the finish line in our faith experience is today? It starts at the cross, and every day we are running that race by faith, looking unto Jesus on the cross. But we are also looking to that finish line where Jesus, as our great high priest, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where he has been since 1844. So do you know what that tells us about this race of faith that we are called to run? This race of faith points us to the cross and to the sanctuary. As we run with patience, the race set before us, as we look to the author of our faith, we see forgiveness for our sins available through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We also see that he will empower us. And then as we look to the right hand of the throne of God, as we look ahead to the finisher of our faith, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, we see a great high priest who says, come boldly to the throne of grace because I was tempted in all points like as you are without sin so I can help you to live a victorious life so that you can lay aside that way. You can lay aside the sin in your life that so easily besets you because as your high priest who has finished the race, I know what it's like to give you power to overcome those temptations. And so as we behold the Lamb of God, the author and the finisher of our faith, we receive the faith and the grace and the power to receive forgiveness and transformation and empowerment to live a life, to run a race that follows after our Savior and our High Priest, starting at the cross, being crucified with Him, living by the faith of Jesus, and ultimately getting to the finish line at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, do you realize that Jesus gave that message especially to the Laodicean church. Notice, we talked a little bit about this last week, but notice what Jesus says. Revelation 3, 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. So Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, and he says, if you open the door, I will come in. 
And if you, based on what we've been studying all week, when we let Jesus come in, that means we have been crucified with Christ. And as we are crucified with Christ, because we have let him come in, notice what happens in verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me where? In my throne. That's the finish line in the race of faith. Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne? And 1 John 5, 4 tells us that this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So if we overcome as Jesus overcame, we have the faith of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I am the author and the finisher of your faith. I help you to start your faith experience at the cross. You receive forgiveness and cleansing. You run this race with patience, with faith, keeping your eyes on me. And as you keep your eyes on me, as I have come into your heart, I will bring you to the finish line and will allow you to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God with me in heaven as you finish this race of faith. That's the message to the Laodicean church, and it connects to what we're reading in Hebrews chapter 12. So Jesus, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He helps us to begin the race of faith. He helps us to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us in our lives. He helps us to run with patience the race set before us because we see him enduring the cross. We see him despising the shame. We see him ultimately victorious and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Paul knows that this may be a challenging call to be given. And he continues on, verse 3 of Hebrews 12. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Paul is saying, consider Jesus. Look to the author and finisher of your faith who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, meaning that when he was here on this earth, he, his was a life of purity, and he, was, he, he faced such revolting and reviling interactions. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was told to come down from the cross. And as you see Jesus enduring such awfulness, out of his love for us, surely that could have an effect upon your mind as you run this race of patience that is set before us. Because naturally speaking, we would become weary and faint as we run a race. And the way to avoid becoming weary in our Christian experience, to feel like fainting, to feel like stopping, to feel like turning around and saying, let's just give up. No, consider him. Consider the Lamb of God. And notice verse 4. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. The normal Christian experience, we're running the race with patience. Okay, I saw Jesus on the cross. And then that first trial comes. And then we're like, oh, this is too hard. Surely God wouldn't expect me to go through this. And yet Paul is saying, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can resist sin unto blood. You can be faithful unto death as you run with patience the race set before us. Now, what's very interesting is right after that, in verses 5 through 7, you see, in essence, the Laodicean message. Because you see in verse 5, Paul says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God deal, dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And remember in the Laodicean message, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So, Hebrews 12 is a message to the Laodicean church. 
This is a message saying, Laodicea, you are to be among the 144,000 to run with patience the race that is set before you so that you can have the patience of the saints described in Revelation 14. And in order to have that patience, just as Jesus says he will rebuke and chasten you in the Laodicean message, Paul is saying you need to endure the chastening of the Lord as you run this race with patience because this chastening of the Lord is removing the impurities from your life so that you will be strengthened to run the race of faith. If those impurities remain, you would fall out and become weary and faint. And so the Laodicean message is seen here in Hebrews 12. Continuing on, notice in verse 12, and he makes a comparison to how fathers of the flesh, of our flesh, chasten us, but how God the Father is chastening us. In verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. And remember, the 144,000, they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. And we saw in Isaiah 57, 15, that the Father's name or God's name is holy. So as we go through this chastening, it allows God to remove the impurities from our lives. And just as Jesus said to the Laodicean church, I counsel you to buy gold tried in the fire. That gold tried in the fire is making our faith pure. And continuing, verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. How many of you enjoy trials? I don't think anybody enjoys trials, and sometimes when I'm going through a particular trial, Joel reminds me of the Bible verse that says, in everything give thanks, and I can tell you that at that moment, humanly speaking, that is not the verse I want to hear about. But you know, God allows us to go through trials to purify us, and as Scripture says here, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And then notice verse 12. Verse 12 of Hebrews 12 says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. You could make the case that when Paul is saying, lift up the hands which hang down, humanly, he is saying, you need to allow yourself to be crucified with Christ. Because humanly speaking, we're saying, I don't want those nails to go through my hands. Just allow me to go through this experience without those nails going through. I don't want that part of the crucifixion. But if we are crucified with Christ, we will be crucified in every sense of the word, spiritually speaking. And so scripture says, you're running that race with patience. Lift up the hands and the knees. Allow yourself to be crucified with Christ and make straight paths for your feet. Walk a straight path. And continue on, verse, continuing on, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And there you see it. You know, it's a dangerous gospel that says you can stand in the presence of a holy God with all of your filthiness. God is merciful. We come into his presence with a repentant heart, and he will take the rags of filthiness off of us. But we don't come into his presence presuming that our rags of fil filthiness are acceptable to him. And I also like where it says, follow peace with all men. You know, sometimes we can say, I'm going to stand for the truth, and I'm just going to say it like it is. I'm going to be a modern-day Elijah, but we do so in a way that does not follow peace with all men. We're, we're just doing it to make a name for ourselves, to be known as the one who always speaks up against error, but we're not doing it in the spirit of Christ. We, we need to stand up for the truth. Yes, we do, but we do so by following peace if we can. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And now notice, let's come on down to verse 18. It's interesting how Hebrews 12 connects to the message of the 144,000. 
after we see that we need to make straight paths for our feet, notice Paul saying we are coming somewhere as we, as we run this race. We are running a race with patience. We are making straight paths for our feet. And in verse 18, Paul says, For you are not coming to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them any more. This is Mount Sinai in the wilderness. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now notice in verse 22 where we are coming as we run this race with patience. Where are we coming in verse 22? But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. Listen, those of you who are running the race with patience that is set before you, the race that starts at the cross and ends at the right hand of the throne of God, this race is taking you to Mount Zion so that you can stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Hebrews chapter 12 is a message especially to God's last day church, to his Laodicean church, to prepare us to be part of the 144,000. And we do so by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author of our faith at the cross. He helps us to run with patience the race that is set before us. He helps us to finish the race, and we finish that race at the right hand of the throne of God on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. And we do so because we have learned to keep our eyes on Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who through the trials of life we have learned to keep our eyes on him. And so when we come back to Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, when we see standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, 144,000, we know that those who are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, these are the ones who learned to run with patience the race set before them. These are the ones that learned to lay aside every way and the sin which so easily besets us. These are the ones who learned to look unto Jesus every step of the way from the cross to the sanctuary all the way to Mount Zion and they were the ones that learned to endure the chastening of the Lord. They were not like the children of Israel who when the chastening of the Lord came their response was oh did God lead us out to die in the wilderness? And are we like them? Are we any different? We come to church, we hear a message, it stirs our hearts, and then a trial comes during the week, and we're questioning if God is leading in our lives anymore. Listen, the 144,000 are going to learn to keep looking unto Jesus through every trial, through every storm of life, so that when that final test comes, we will come through like gold purified in the fire. And I am looking forward to the day that by the grace of God, that I and that you will be, will be among that number who stand with Jesus, the Lamb, the author, and the finisher of our faith on Mount Zion. He was the lamb slain. He was the living sacrifice. We will be living sacrifices. We will be crucified with Christ. We will run with patience the race set before us. And by his power and through his grace, someday soon, we will stand on Mount Zion with the lamb. And I want to be there with each one of you. And it's been my privilege to be with you here this week. 
I believe that the Lord has a message for this time to prepare us to be living sacrifices, to prepare us to receive the three angels' messages of Christ and him crucified so that we can receive the power of the latter rain to go out and to proclaim this message to a lost and dying world so that Jesus can come soon. Because you know what? I am tired of this world. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much wealth, how much cars, houses, lands, whatever you want to say. None of that matters as because all of that is going to pass away. But what matters is that Jesus is looking to prepare a group of people from among his second advent movement of whom we have the privilege of being a part of. And we can, by his grace and through his power, be among that number that stand on Mount Zion if we will learn to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you want to be among that number, if you want to strive through his power and through his grace to be among that number, I would invite you to stand with me at this time. And we are going to pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be your children. What a privilege it is to take upon the name of Christian, of Seventh-day Adventist, one who follows the Lord, one who believes in the soon coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. And Lord, we see that you have a calling for us to run with patience the race that has been set before us so that we can look to you as the author and finisher of our faith so that we can someday soon stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb and we see that we will endure, endure chastening and rebuke, but help us to endure that cheerfully and patiently and may we be purified and may we stand on that mount with the Lamb someday soon. May each one of us be faithful. May not one of us be missing from that great day. And Go with us now. Thank you again for the privilege we've had of being together this week. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. It's been my privilege to be with you, and may God go with you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.